We've been walking through the story of the Bible. We started at Genesis, and we've just been kind of looking at how this is actually one story. One story primarily to tell us about Jesus and our need for Him. And we've last few lessons, last two sermons, we've been looking at the life of Christ. We saw Christ coming into the world, John the Baptist making the way for him, and now he's here. Jesus has been born. And today we're going to take some time to look at his boyhood. But we need to remember where we've been, and so we've got our emotions, all right? Now, we've left off. Jesus was our last one, um, and we'll start from the top and see how good your memory is after a week off. From the top, we've got God, creation. Fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. Everybody gets a sticker. All right. So here we go. We're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk a little bit about him as a baby still, but the majority of this morning will be focusing on Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. There's this cool story in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to join me there. The verses will be up on the screen in the New Living Translation. If you've got an inferior version on your Bible, go ahead and follow along. Um, this is story is a story about this man named Simeon. And he's this, this guy who is uh, at the end of his life, the final chapter of his life, and he's been told by the Holy Spirit that he will not die until he sees the Messiah, until he sees the, the promised one. And so based on this promise, and he's, and he's one of those, I love this guy, he's like one of those sweet old grandpas, you know, the guy that always has the Werther Originals on the coffee table, right? And his breath has this sweet kind of blend of black licorice and B.O. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's fantastic. And Mary and Joseph, they come into the temple when Jesus is eight days old. And they come to have him circumcised, like every male Jew is required by law, and to dedicate him as every firstborn male is required by law. And so when they come there, Simeon is in the temple. He's a prophet. And I don't normally like showing pictures of Bible people, mostly because they didn't have cameras back then. Um, But oftentimes these recreations, these drawings, they're very inaccurate. They show them all to be Caucasian, which was not the case for any of them at the time. Um, But I I, I loved, I, I found this as I was looking, and I love the emotion that's depicted in this face. This is betraying Simeon holding the baby Jesus. And as you'll see with the light and the kind of the the globe there on top of him, the significance of that in just a second. But you imagine a lifetime of waiting. You've been promised this wonderful promise. You've had to wait your whole life. I don't like waiting the three minutes for my top ramen to get done. Simeon's waited his entire life, and now this moment, this promised moment has arrived, and he's holding this God baby in his arms. And he says these prophetic words in Luke chapter 2. He says, Simeon was there, he took the child in his arms, and he praised God, and he praised God. And it says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I can die in peace I've seen him. And look at what he says. I have seen your salvation. He's holding salvation incarnate. It's an eight-day-old. It says what you have prepared for all people. I want us to zero in on that word all. 
Because the next thing he says is he is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people Israel. So notice what Simeon says here. We've known in the story that that Jesus is coming, this deliverer is coming to, to free Israel from their captives, to be Israel's king in the line of David. But what he says here is this person is coming, this child is coming to be a light to all nations, not just Israel. And he's echoing this, this idea that Jesus is a light to the nations was, was spoken of hundreds of years before that in, uh, from the lips of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 49, look at what he says, and I love this. He goes, it is too light a thing. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, talking about the coming deliverer, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He goes, listen, it's too light a thing. It's too, too small a thing to simply come back to, to ransom Israel. He says, the person that's coming, the good news that is coming is too glorious. It's too expansive. It's too wonderful to be, to be for one nation. And look at what he says. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He says the one that's coming is not just for people of Jewish descent, but the one that's coming is coming to set free people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And I'm so glad that's the case because I'm not a Jew. Right? Jesus came for me too. And this isn't something new. You go all the way back to the father of the Jews, Abraham. And when God made his promise in Genesis chapter 12 to get this whole thing started, look at what he said to Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And he says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, Jesus would come as a Jew, but he came to bless every family. Raise your hand if you're in a family. And the rest of you, I don't know what's going on. You're lying and weird and we'll have a talk afterward he came to bless all families on earth salvation was always intended not just for israel but for the whole world now sadly he's going to be a light to the nations but he's going to be rejected by the one nation that he specifically had come in the form of as a jew he says this child simeon goes on is destined to cause many in israel to fall and many others to rise he has been sent as a sign from god but many and we'll find out most will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And we'll, we'll come back to this last sentence. He's speaking to Mary. A sword will pierce your very soul. John 1 says it this way. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to the people of Israel. But by and large, his own people, his own family rejected him. You see, this little baby did not come sugar-coated, flannel graph Jesus, the one in the pictures, the white boy with the flowing locks of brown hair and holding little lambs. Jesus came, and man, he came to tick people off. He said, I come, I'm going to set father against son, daughter against mother. Jesus came to tell people, you stink, that you are not good on your own. And there's nothing you can do. You cannot rely on your Jewish heritage. You cannot rely on your own good works. I alone are go- am good and you need me. And that is a message that their pride then and our pride today does not want to hear. But it was the truth and I'm so glad that Jesus came to speak it. And many would oppose him. In fact, they would reject him to the point that they would murder him. But it's all part of the plan. 
this, this whole story that we've been looking at, it's about to culminate. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the answer to hundreds and thousands of years of how God will reconnect with fallen man. And we see this in the arms of Simeon, the light of the world for the hope of nations. And then we turn the next verse in Luke 2. It's interesting. It talks about the boy Jesus. Now, this is the only story we have of Jesus between his infancy and his adulthood. There's only one story, and it's only recorded in this this place in Luke. So I think we need to pay attention. There's some significance. If If the authors of the gospel said this is the one thing you need to know from his adolescence, We need to zero in on this. Now, there are some weird apocryphal stories. That just means stories that are outside of what we would see as the inspired word of God, or you've heard it called the canon, the 66 books in our Bible. And there's some weird stories. One of them is when Jesus was five years old, he's like cleansing mud puddles. Very weird story. And then this other little boy bumps into his shoulder, and Jesus kills him. (laughs) And he starts calling everyone around him dunderheads, all right? These are reasons that this, these were not included in the Gospels. Bizarre stories. But can you imagine, can you imagine being Jesus' sibling? Here's the perfect kid. Like, I found the bumper sticker on the back of their minivan. You can see which one Jesus is, right? Imagine being the, I mean, you go, Mom, why doesn't Jesus ever get spanked, right? I mean, that would be horrible. I think being Jesus' brother would be the worst position in the world. And, and, and imagine being his parents. I mean, Jesus would never throw a tantrum. He would never talk back, never pinch his brother while Mary's driving the camel, right, when he's, she's not looking. I mean, never, I, I, I just, I think about that. Like, what would it look like for God to grow up? Like, what does it look like for him to be in elementary school? What does it look for, like for him to play on the playground with the other students? This is the one story that we're told, and this is, what, this is how it goes. Is that every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, if you were a good Jew, you went to Jerusalem, wherever you lived, you would go to Jerusalem for three festivals a year. And this one was kind of the, the Super Bowl. It's the Passover. And they would go, and it was required for adult males, not required for female adults to attend all three. But we see here, Mary attended. And we see in this, their, their strict devotion to the law. We'll see Jesus' parents, why they did not have much money, they loved God, and, and they obeyed his word. That's why they had him circumcised and dedicated. And we'll see Jesus is actually the only one that perfectly keeps the law. But it says, so they go down to this pa- Passover festival as required. It says, when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Now, this is significant that Jesus is 12 years old. Um, up until this point, as a Jewish boy, your parents would have been responsible for your actions. Um, that they would have been teaching you the law, teaching you to obey the law. You were kind of under their umbrella up until the age of 12. And then when you became 12, there was sort of this year, they, they typically saw it kind of as a year of puberty, okay? So it's just a rough year for these guys. Uh, the Jewish kids, they had to step up their game at this point. And they were required to, man, to, to really step into a final year of preparation before they would enter into what was seen as a 13-year-old and on as adulthood, as a Jew, you imagine your 13-year-old considered as an adult? <laughs> and they would study Jewish law and practices, and it would get more intense at this point. It's kind of like they were taking AP courses in the synagogue. And, and this was a time that later would start to become known as the bar mitzvah. And the word bar means son, or bat mitzvah, bat for daughter. 
In the case of Jesus, this was the time of bar mitzvah, which means, so, and then the word mitzvah means covenant or commandment. So you've probably heard of the Jewish celebration. That ceremony didn't start happening um, as a celebration until after Jesus' time. But this was a time to celebrate. So you put those two words together, it's the son of the covenant. So, so basically what, what this meant was that they are now no longer under their parents' umbrella, but they are entering into the agreement that God made with the people of Israel. Remember the covenant. You, you obey my law, I'll bless you. You disobey, I will curse you. So now this, this boy at turning 13 would be seen as he's entering and now he's, he is keeping this covenant with God as an adult male or as an adult female. And I think it's significant that Jesus picks this time of his life at 12 to teach his parents and those who would have eyes to see he was no ordinary son of the covenant. In fact, Jesus came to fulfill everything that the covenant was pointing forward, that you can't keep the law, that you need someone to keep it for you, you need a savior. He was the fulfillment of that, and we'll see today that he was actually the son of the covenant maker. He is God himself. So here's what happens. Verse 43. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. So everyone starts to head home, back to Nazareth, but Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. Now, to get some context here, it was about a five-day trip from Jerusalem back up north to Nazareth. It was a 90-mile walk. They didn't have a minivan they all piled into. They didn't jump on a greyhound. They had to walk. And you do the math, that's 18 miles a day by foot to go back up to Nazareth. And it's evening, according to the passage. That means they've traveled an entire day before they've realized that Jesus is not there. And you saw the words that said that they assumed that he was just with some of the others. They would travel in these big posses, right, this big caravan, and they just assumed he was with one of the other uh, people. This tells us that Mary and Joseph had a lot of faith in their 12-year-old son. Now, normally, who in their right mind would trust a 12-year-old with anything, right? I wouldn't trust them to know that you're not supposed to put tinfoil in the microwave, right? Let alone make this kind of a journey. And if Jesus was irresponsible, I'm sure things would have been different. I mean, we all have that one child in the family, okay? And you know exactly who I'm talking about. Where if they're silent or missing for like three seconds, you just assume they've hurt somebody, they've broken something, they've pulled a fire alarm, right? For us, that was Jeremy. Uh, And it probably raced through their mind. Where is he? What's he doing? And then it's like, oh yeah, he's God. He's probably making good choices, right? I mean, you probably don't have to worry. But what tells me here is this, I don't think that Jesus is staying behind without communicating that he's staying behind with his parents. I don't think this was careless. I don't think this was disrespectful. I think at the age of 12, Jesus is not pulling a prank, but he has a tremendous amount of wisdom, even as a 12-year-old boy, and he's going to be teaching his parents and teaching us something very important about who he is. Look at verse 45. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. There's nothing more terrifying the not knowing where your child is. I remember when I was, uh, when we were living down Gaswell, I was probably about 12, 
And there was a boy, a neighbor of ours, he was about three or four years old, and, and he went missing one afternoon. And his parents went knocking door to door, and we were a few doors down, and so they asked us to come out, and we're starting to help them look. The whole neighborhood's looking. Hours go by. The police get involved. Firefighters come to help. We had helicopters swirling above looking for this boy. And it turned out that he'd actually walked into one of their sheds, and there was a car seat in it, and he crawled inside the car seat, and even buckled up, and just racked out. He was asleep for hours while all this searching was going on. He's just having a nice little nap. And, and, and even though we found him, and he was okay, he was safe and sound, I remember the look on his parents' faces, the agony, the torment of not knowing where their son was, and if he was okay, and if they'd ever see him again. And I imagine Joseph and Mary, after walking a full day in the desert and realizing their son is nowhere to be found. And it says here that they spend three days, three days looking for him. Imagine what those three days would have felt like. Saying, is the son of God lost? Is the light of the world? Is the hope of Israel? Is he even still alive? All of these prophecies for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it comes down to, did we lose him? And then in verse 46, as they finally discovered him in the temple, back in Jerusalem, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Now, They find him in the temple, and there's this amazing scene. They have this conversation. There's three things that I want us to pull out to learn about this 12-year-old boy who is also a 12-year-old God. First thing, he's no ordinary child. Look at verse 46. It says, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. It says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So imagine being these teachers of the law, You have spent your entire life studying the Torah, knowing this thing inside and out. This is the the cream of the spiritual crop in Israel. They got their PhDs and their BDDs and their blah, blah, blahs. And there are these smart guys, and they're sitting around. And here comes in this 12-year-old, this kid whose voice is just starting to squeak and crack. And he sits down, and he starts telling them all these things, all these insights into the prophecies, into the book of Moses. I mean, imagine our church, we have our elder meeting or our preaching team meeting, and some 12-year-old from the church comes walking in, tells us what's up, starts breaking down the Hebrew, right? Reuben Glick, teaching us all we need to know about the Bible. Get out of here, you punk, right? You don't even have hair under your armpits. Don't talk to me. And, if, and I want to note here, at the age of 12, they are amazed at what he's saying. But just about 20 years later, he's going to continue to speak. And at that point, they're going to cover their ears, quit listening, and eventually kill Jesus for the words that come out of his mouth. Jesus is demonstrating he may be 12 years old, but he is no ordinary 12-year-old. Which brings us to the second point here, that he's fully God, and he's fully man. Notice it says here, it says... He was listening to them and asking questions. He was listening to them and asking questions. Now you say, well, wait a second. If he's God, doesn't he already know everything? Like, if I'm, if I'm Jesus' buddy, like I'm, taking, I'm putting him on jeopardy, right? And I'm getting a cut. 
or I'm taking him to Vegas, and we're betting on sports predictions, right? I mean, I'm going to, he's a cash cow, right? Doesn't he know everything? But here it says he's asking questions. Doesn't God already have the answers to every question? But I'm assuming he's not just humoring them. I'm assuming he's legitimately asking questions. And look at what it says at the end of the chapter. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. What does that imply? That he had room to grow in wisdom. So we say, what in the world is it saying here? What does this mean? Well, you go to Philippians chapter 2. It talks about Jesus becoming a man. And Paul says this, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And this word, this word emptied himself, it's this, this symbol, that's why we have the picture there, he's pouring himself out, he's emptying something of him, and you say, so what's going on? We know that he didn't cease to be God, because if he just emptied himself of all of his godness and he's not God, then he can't be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus could not have died for us as our substitution if he wasn't God. So what does it mean to empty himself here? Well, what it means is that he temporarily, voluntarily, surrendered some of his attributes so that he could step into flesh and dwell among us. Because he also needed to be man so that he could die. So you think about some of his attributes, his omnipresence, just a fancy Bible word for everywhere, all present. Think about this. Jesus was in Nazareth, then they traveled down to Jerusalem, and his parents left, and he wasn't with them, he was in the temple. Jesus wasn't everywhere at once, when when God is everywhere. But Jesus could only be at one place at a time, it's sort of the problem in the story. Jesus had temporarily surrendered, he had limited himself in a body, just like you and I can't be everywhere. He also surrendered some of his omniscience, science meaning knowledge, so knowing everything. And we don't know how this works. I, I, can't, I can't explain the mysteries of God. But he temporarily surrendered his ability to know all the things. He says this himself in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the end times. He says, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Jesus didn't know when it was going to all end. He says, only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. And I, and I love what John Piper says, kind of explaining this. He says, these, they, talking about his attributes, they were his potentially, and thus he was God. He could have these things. He's voluntarily surrendering these things. So he's still in control. He's still God. But he surrendered their use absolutely, and so he became man. And how cool that this child in the temple is really living out what it means to be a human. That he's not so different than you as a 12-year-old, or me as a 12-year-old, or your current 12-year-old. That he can't serve as an example to us and our children of what it means to be a man, or a woman, or a 12-year-old who walks with God. That leads us to our third observation here. Jesus is going to teach us about what it means to be a learner. We see four things here from Jesus' posture in the temple. Look at what it talks about Jesus doing. It says he sought out and sat before teachers. He listened to those teachers. He asked questions of those teachers. And then he gave answers from what he knew of the scripture. So here we see prepubescent Jesus. He's already serving as a great example of what it means to walk with God as a disciple. 
Now, the word disciple, and we're going to talk about this more in January, we're going to kind of look at the purpose of our church and what we're called to do. And I think the primary call, spoiler alert, is to be disciples, to make disciples of all nations. And the word disciple, it simply means learner. A disciple is one who's learning from someone else. And what Jesus is showing here is a couple of keys to being a disciple or a learner. And the first thing he's pointing out here is humility. Humility. I, I remember when I was fresh out of Bible school. Here's me at graduation, right? The extremely mature age of 20. And I was ready. I thought I knew everything. That I, could, I, I had been to two years of Bible school, man. And I could come to a church and I could assess the situation. I could tell you all of your theological flaws in 30 minutes or less. Or your money back. Because I had gone to two years of Bible school. Wasn't even accredited. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> you're, like, you're our pastor. What? Um, what did Jesus do? He sought out people who were wiser than him. People who were more experienced than him. And then he literally sat at their feet and asked questions. Teach me. Lead me. And if Jesus had the humility to, to, to say, I don't have it all figured out, I need to learn, how much more should we? You ask yourself, am I humble? Am I humble? Am I willing to admit that I don't know everything, that from time to time I might be wrong? Am I willing to learn from others? And man, I encourage you and our family, Find people who have walked this road farther than you. If, if you're a parent who feels like you're drowning, come alongside. We, we've got some, some experienced couples and families in our church who have walked the road farther. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but by the grace of God, they've been taught. They, they've learned from trial and error. Find people who have walked this road farther than you and sit at their feet and ask questions and learn from them and admit that you don't know everything. It's being a disciple. It's being a learner. And the second thing that we learn here is hunger. The key of being a follower of God, a follower of Jesus, is hung, being hungry. For some of us, it's getting over ourselves, realizing that we don't know everything. For others of us, it's snapping out of our complacency. And it's developing a Jesus-like hunger for the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about knowing Bible facts, like that you're going to be awesome at the sword drill. You remember those things back when we had those paper things that got bound together? They were called books. Uh, we used to do sword drills. Okay, we'll talk about it later. But uh, it's not just a hunger to know Bible facts. It's a hunger to know the Father himself. In fact, I was reading this morning in John 17, and when Jesus is praying for us in the garden, he says, Father, I pray that they would know truth. He says, this is eternal life. We always think about eternal life just meaning you live forever. He said, this is eternal life. To know the one true God and the one that he has sent. You want a life? It's knowing him. There is no life outside of knowing who God is. And you ask yourself, am I hungry to learn? Am I hungry to know the Father and to know the one that he sent, to know Jesus? And if you're not hungry, if I'm not hungry, we have to ask ourselves why? Why isn't there a hunger there? And I think that oftentimes what's going on is we are stuffing ourselves with what I would call the empty calories of the world. Spiritual candy. 
Things that taste good at first, but they offer no nutritional value. And when we're stuffing ourselves with entertainment and relationships and striving after success, and we're trying to fill ourselves with all these other things, well, our stomachs are bloated. But we're going to die of malnutrition because there is one, the bread of life. There is one that we can taste and see and be filled, and that's Jesus. We empty ourselves of those other things and be filled on the bread of life. And then finally here, Jesus says this phrase, I must be in my father's house. Here's the exchange between the parents and Jesus. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? And this is when you know you're in trouble. Your father and I, right? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Three days of searching for Jesus. You ever made your parents really mad, right? Don't you ever do that again, right? And, and look at what Jesus' response is. He says, but why did you need to search? Don't leave with that. Why do you need to search, he asked. Don't you know, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus pulls the God card, right? He just pulls the God card. Didn't you know where to find me? And, and, and they, they looked at the playground. They looked at the, the kosher candy shop, right? They looked at the, the swimming pool. Said, you've looked everywhere, but didn't you know that I would be at dad's? And a tip to all you kids out there, don't try this at home, right? That's not going to work for you. I wouldn't say, well, why did you need to look for me? Didn't you know of my sweet tooth? You'd find me at Dairy Queen, right? It's just a great way to get a spanking. That's all that's going to happen. But the question here is, was this disobedience? Did, did, did Jesus disobey? He didn't tell his parents where he was going to be. He knew that they would want him to go with him, and here he stays in Jerusalem. Was, was, this, obey, was this disobedience? Well, we look at Hebrews, and he's talking about Jesus. as he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And time and time again, we see that Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And again, if, if he was not perfect, then he could not be the perfect sacrifice. So we know that Jesus in this moment was not sinning. So we have to dig a little bit deeper here. Did Jesus confuse and scare his parents half to death? Yes. Yes. Does that make it wrong? No, not necessarily. We're going to see in the life of Christ here on earth that his top priority was never to make people comfortable. It was never to make people feel all warm and squishy inside. Jesus, he, he came to this earth to tell the truth. He came to tell the people, including his own family, the reality of who he was and their need for him. That was his mission. And I think we see here, look at verse 50. This is a key. It says, but they didn't understand what he meant. Didn't you know I'd be at my father's house? They don't understand what he's saying there. And we've got to pay attention, or like Joseph and Mary, we're going to miss the point of the story. I think the main point of this passage, it lies in the use of some pronouns in the word father. Look at what Mary said. Your father and I. Who is he talking about? Joseph. Your father and I have been searching for you. His response is, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? He, he's coming, he's, he's realizing at the age of 12 who he really is, and he chooses this crucial stage in his life when he's on the brink of manhood. Just tell his parents in an unforgettable way 
that he knows who his real father is and what his mission is. He's seeing, I am the fulfillment of all these prophecies. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you remember Simeon's words back when he's talking to Mary. And what did he tell her at the end of his prophecy? He said, a sword will pierce your very soul. What does that mean? It's going to be a time that's going to come when Jesus will be killed in the same city that he's in right now in Jerusalem. And for three days, Mary will feel the greatest anguish in her soul that a mother could ever feel. As if a sword had pierced her own soul. And isn't this three days of anguishing, searching, a foreshadowing of what's to come? She said, your father and I have been searching for you in pain. That word in the Greek, it meant torment. It meant sorrow. Three days, I didn't know where you were. I thought you were gone forever. And she would experience the same thing when he was an adult. As he was in the grave for three days. Is he gone forever? I think the main point of this passage is that here as a 12-year-old, when I was still struggling with long division, this 12-year-old, he discovers this amazing truth that he is the unique, the one and only Son of God. And his mission is going to require such an intense devotion to his Father's will that he will, that he will follow his Father to the point of death on a cross. He says, wherever you take me, I must be in my Father's house. I must be in the center of my Father's will. Whatever he requires of me, I will do because my food is to obey my Father. And that priority, that mission will take precedent over his own mother, his earthly mother, his earthly father, his earthly family. And he will follow his father even when it requires him being rejected by his own nation. Even when it requires him being betrayed by one of his closest friends. To be denied and abandoned by those who had followed him most intensely. Even when it requires him to be mocked and cursed and beaten. And even his own heavenly father must temporarily turn his back on him while he has the sins of my life on his shoulders. And as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus starts taking steps down this road of pain because of the joy that would be his afterward. And you know what his joy was? That you and I could be sitting in a gym in 2017 praising the name of Jesus. Father, I'm so thankful that Jesus came. I'm so thankful that he walked this road, that he, that he took this cup from you. And then even as a 12-year-old, he was understanding who his real father was and who his real mission was, what his real mission was. Father, teach us. Teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Lord, there might be people in this room this morning that don't know Jesus. That have never followed him. That they don't even know what that means. Father, this might be a day where we add to your kingdom. That someone would, would, would come to understand what it means that Jesus came and died for their sins. And that they need him. Lord, that we might learn as your learners what it means to be humble. That we don't know everything. 
that we would find people in our lives to walk this road with, to teach us and to grow us, but ultimately to sit at your feet and say, I don't know everything, and that I'm not good, that there's nothing good in me, and I need Jesus. Father, humble us. And then, Father, I ask that you would give us a great hunger in our stomachs that we recognize can only be filled by you. That we would not attempt to fill ourselves with the empty calories of this world. That we would purge ourselves from those things that, that tell us that they can fill us, that tell us that they can satisfy us, but never ever can. And that we would be hungry for Jesus. That we would be filled and satisfied with him alone. And just as he obeyed the Father, that we would follow Jesus and find out where true life really lies. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.